podcast has bad words. <laughs> Hello, simpletons. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. What? So, so We're the king simpletons. Makes it sound like an old timey town. <laughs> You've descended from the castle to be like, "Hello, plebs." Hello, simpletons. <laughs> well, to be a simpleton means you're foolish and gullible. Mm. And if you're listening to us, you have to be foolish a and gullible. Bit. A little yeah. bit. A little bit. Because Ryan and I are so foolish. Like we're just mm. fools. Mm. And. And so, like, yeah, we, we, well, by the way, we're here with Kate Bowler, and <laughs> she has, a, she has a new book out, and uh, we're going to talk about the book, but um, I have a confession, and it, we asked your publisher for copies, and they never sent them to <laughs> <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> Rachel. Um, and so I haven't read the book yet. I've, I've read one of your I'm books so in the past. I read Blessed before we... Oh, no. Uh, yeah, I'm I know. I'm sorry. It was very... Why? Uh, well, it was I'm obsessed a, with the, the... It was a dissertation that became a... Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. When, when academics write books, <laughs> when, a, when a woman loves a book very much, <laughs> and they decide to build a life together, it's... <laughs> It's very specific. <laughs> so, yeah, that was about 450 pages of me traveling around interviewing televangelists. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And about it. Uh, have you been following this whole uh, Mars Hill podcast that's going on recently? That's in your world. It is in my world. Yeah. It's yeah. it's funny because Ryan and I, we have different religious beliefs, spiritual beliefs, all, all, all of that. Um and you need to accept the spaghetti monster in your heart, John. <laughs> yeah, I actually have pamphlets. I would like to give both of you. <laughs> and um, I'm not leaving till I get a saving commitment. <laughs> well, Ryan grew up Jehovah's Witness going door to door every did. weekend. I did, hey yeah. There. Really, uh, yeah, <laughs> really uh, messed me up in all the best ways, you I guess. you got great people skills. Yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah, it. I want to open a door and see your kind eyes. My, <laughs> my first job like uh that I got like selling um like door to door stuff yeah. the the hiring manager was like are you like are you prepared to get like you know told no going door to door I'm like I was raised for this like my parents <laughs> bred me <laughs> to go door to door and get rejected you know my doors I got slammed in my face all of them oh. yeah most of them yeah, yeah. yeah. literally or figuratively right i mean mm, th- here's the thing yeah. he so Ryan, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses conversion rate is extremely low it's compared horrible. to like Mormons. The only reason that like their numbers stay the same is because they keep having kids. Birth <laughs> rates are birth <laughs> rates are, are strong. Yeah, they yeah. are. Right. Yeah. And so Ryan would go door to door and for eighteen years or longer than that, twenty something years, door to door, and never converted anyone, but kept doing it over never? No, no, and I tell you, so no, I had some Bible studies. I had some people like, sh- you know, I think they were just stringing me along. <laughs> They're like this. This guy is kind of good company. Yeah, this <laughs> guy's handsome. I like you. Yeah, I like you. I just don't like what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> hey, can you come over here and shut up? <laughs> Aww, you brought the watchtower. Oh yeah. Yes. I'm friends with all my my local JWs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. I I don't want to knock on them too bad because I really do think that. You know, a lot of JWs are very loving, kind-hearted. They're just a little misguided. It's really not the people; it's the like the, it's the leaders of the organization that kind of ruined it for me. But anyway, to who's yeah. who's who's what, what? Tell me about Mars Hill. Oh yeah, yeah, the, the, the whole Mark Driscoll thing. Yeah, tell me about it. Not, not the our friend Rob Bell. That's the other Mars Hill. Oh, okay. But uh, it's, it's always a little confusing. Uh, he lives right up the street here, um, <laughs> and <laughs> he's he's a great guy. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times. Now it's a different Mars Hill. Okay. That was also 
around at the same exact time, but it was in Seattle and it was a giant church. It had all these scandals. And I don't know if you know anything about it. I just thought it was a, it's a really fast. I, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine recently, mm-hmm. uh, Adam, and I'm like, I, I was telling him about the podcast that it's called the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And I said, I don't know why I'm so fascinated by this, but I am. Mm. And I think part of it, it it's, there's so it's about a mega church and scandals happening in the mega church. Yes, but okay. it, it's about a particular kind of truth within that as well. I think that's what's really appealing to me. Like, mm. yes, there's this. A lot of these churches have these charismatic leaders, as you exposed in your book, blessed, gently described. Yes, <laughs> right. and um, yes, you gently described, <laughs> and carefully documented. Uh-huh. Have you been sued about that book? <laughs> no comment. Never convicted. Yeah, Never convicted, like, guys. Okay. Um, so. Anyway, um, I don't know how much you followed that or how much it interests you, but why does it interest me is my question. Yeah, oh, I've got answers for that. And what the hell is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's get it. No, no, Let's me first. It. I'll need five to ten. But uh, So um, the, the rise of megachurches in the United States is completely fascinating. It follows mm. uh, frequently the rise of, um, of the suburbs. And they especially, they especially explode after the 1970s in which, um, in which Americans become obsessed with a kind of religious show and tell. Mm. And they create more and more sort of church concentration in which bigger and bigger feats of faith can be experienced on an average Sunday. And mm. the... The type of megachurch that I specialize in is the prosperity megachurch, mm-hmm. which is a really, it's a very top heavy, meaning like a lot of the biggest churches in around the world and in, in the United States are these churches who have a charismatic leader. Both have, you each have the hair for this kind of leadership. <laughs> so I would just strongly Perfect. encourage you to just consider it. Um, oh, vocational discernment. We already um, have a beginning congregation. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah, our studio that, audience. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. And uh, mm. speaking of my mesis, you would have to say something and then the, the, the camera would cut to there impressed and odd faces. Yes. And um, so... Look more odd, Emma. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I put odd in your job description, Emma. Um, uh, they, they believe in uh, a certain form of positivity that like if you... Uh, believe correctly, think correctly, pray correctly, mm. and um, exude that kind of optimism that um, God will reward you with a healthy body and abundant finances and a, mm. a great family and a more than enoughness. Mm. And that may, that puts a lot of emphasis then on the charismatic pastor and his inevitably beautiful wife mm. and perfectly obedient children and home and car and so that's why they're especially prone to scandal is because anytime there's kind of financial mismanagement combined yeah. there's really I made a chart once about how easy it is or hard it is to topple certain leaders and because I was also writing a book on um, gender and, and and women in leadership and I realized according to my fabulous chart that if you're a woman if you make one half a mistake which is not sexual impropriety but the the suggestion of sexual impropriety like good night sunset you're out yeah giant giant cane comes out to claw you off stage and um, but if you're a, if you're a dude you need to have both financial and sexual indiscretion and then they'll give you about six months and then restore you to a, yeah to a process so we're fascinated with them a church like that because of of the way that a person or a single person has to embody the truth of a whole movement mm. and that's why we are interested in their personal lives well mm. what's fascinating is I think we conflate greatness 
and power in a way. I heard, uh, actually it was Andrew Schultz was talking about this recently of all people. And my wife and I were talking about it last night. The, this, all the people who I really look up to had no use for power. I, I feel like even though they were given positions of perceived power, mm. like the Anthony DeMellos of the world, right? And when, when, when I, you know, someone, I look up to someone like him and I, I'm like, he didn't want to have control over anyone. He recognized that as being the opposite of, of loving. And then I think we conflate the, well, this is a great person, often a great man, mm -hmm. right, at the center of this organization. So we give that person a disproportionate amount of power, status, uh, whatever. And, of course, the old platitude about power corrupts absolutely. Well, I think, I mean... Certainly in the last 50 or 60 years, with the rise of a certain form of materialism, we are all looking for um, proof, a certain a formula and a person who embodies it. And mm. so, and especially because with the rise of an organization that big that can create all of their own um, books and media and music, and they're also like a tour of like a venue stop. And all of a sudden they're kind of a one-stop media shop mm -hmm. who can produce an incredible amount of examples of how like I, you know, every, every state has its own kind of celebrity. My local one is a guy with just a lot of very, um, d just lightly distressed jeans and, and fitted graphic tees where it looks like he's a, just a, a what's not, I, sometimes on my Instagram, I'll put up a picture of like a, a CrossFit instructor and a megachurch pastor. <laughs> and I'll just get people to like, which one is which? <laughs> so in this oh, case, wow. he's always sort That's of like, Carl Lentz. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's wow. like barely contained by his, by his, uh, by mm. his organic cotton. And, um, <laughs> and that, uh, and that part of it is that people are looking for, well, look, if God can do it for this person, God, can do it for me mm. and the feeling of always wanting to know that there is I think it just gets constantly down to the same question is like is there a solution to the problem of pain mm. is there a way that I can if I can fix organize curate my life such that this is not going to hurt quite so much mm. and if they promise you a certain kind of faith is always the key to that door yes. key to that lock it's going to be a very tempting mm. a very tempting belief so what you're saying is pray harder. I get it. Right. I'm just, you personally <laughs> is where I was going with that. Is there something here with like the, the toxic positivity in the sense that like you see someone who is, you know, they have the belief, they're praying, they're doing all the right things, they're living yeah. a good life. And you're like, oh, I'm going to do those things. And I know people who have done this where they pray, they, yeah. they, they have faith, they do all the right things, but like they don't get the same reward. Yeah. And it's almost like, it makes them feel even worse because now they feel like yeah, they're a failure. Something's wrong with them. Yeah. 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 I followed the equation, but it didn't add up. Right. Yes. And mm -hmm. I think the like, and I, there's lots of, and there's, there's so many versions of that, that I both as a person who studied the prosperity gospel and as uh, a cancer patient for a long time have kind of been given those formulas. There's mm -hmm. the, um, she said gently and carefully in California, the wellness crowd, mm. <laughs> the wellness <laughs> And I am just never an essential oil away mm. from solving, from solving colon <laughs> cancer. And, and, oh uh, my goodness. and there's a whole, I mean, history of like how, depending on what your illness is, that, that you get, you know, you're like more or less susceptible to those kinds of solutions. If I had brain cancer, people would be less likely to be like, it's something you ate, you in particular. And then a lot of, um, you know, it's just like endless zealotry about, 
you know, someone's cousin who just realized that you too can be your own boss and that this MLMs, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> is about to solve my problem and yours. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We got a segment on the podcast called More About Less, where we read something as sort of a jump off point. And I really like this essay that you wrote called One Thing I Don't Plan to Do Before I Die is make a bucket list. Now, usually Ryan or, not, or I would read this, but since you're here, would you mind reading an excerpt from oh, this for sure, us? yeah. You usually don't read on podcasts, right? I don't. I right? don't. And so I have this I'm here for you. You could put on your NPR voice. I was going to say, I'm <laughs> picking my sad NPR voice, <laughs> and it's going to have all the gentle to saliva sounds <laughs> you want to need. Do you want to just... I'll just start at the beginning. Or just, I'm looking it's at the you best place to start. in hopes that there's Actually, like can you a, read it backwards? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'll find a satanic message. Did right. you guys have that too? I was going to say, we had that like, oh no. <laughs> and that's how demons um, created. Okay. okay, all right. I wish someone had told me that the end of a life is a mathematical equation. At 35, the doctors tell me that I have stage four colon cancer and a slim chance of survival. Suddenly years dwindle into months and months into days, and I begin to count them. All my dreams, ambitions, friendships, petty fights, vacations, and bedtimes with a boy in dinosaur pajamas must be squeezed into a finite and dwindling numbers of hours, minutes, seconds. My precarious diagnosis triggers a series of mental health assessments at the cancer clinic, during which lovely and well-meaning counselors, all seemingly named Caitlin, are telling me to find my meaning. They wonder if I should consider making a bucket list, as many other patients have found the process to be clarifying. What new skill could I learn? What classic movies could I watch? Is there a passion I might reignite? Cross-stitching? Restoring a vintage car? Soaring in a hot air balloon? I attempt to take notes while they're talking and then find myself searching online libraries for the popularization of the term bucket list, followed by a long period processing my disappointment that it only became common after the eponymous Jack Nicholson Morgan Freeman movie in 2007. Boring. <laughs> but I resolved to follow the lead of the Caitlins nonetheless. After all, what do I know about dying? I've never done it before. <laughs> oh, let's, let's expand on that a bit. Um, bucket lists. Do we have a desire? This is just another productivity list. We just give it a different name. Yeah, that's right. It's your Ooh. life productivity list. It's my to-do wow. before I die list. Hold wow. it, read it, look it up, visualize it. You're nothing if you don't check off it. Mm. Free item. Yeah. Oh. And yet, as we check off the items, there's often an emptiness yeah. that exposes itself. Because we thought getting the next thing would be enough. Yeah. This is another kind of conspicuous consumption in yeah. a way. It's the consuming of experiences, thinking as though... You know, so consumerism is, is merely... The ideology that believe the ideology that buying things will make me happier or more complete. Yeah, that's consumerism, and th so this is sort of experience consumerism in a way, with a fancier name. Yeah, I mm. I kind of looked at the history of bucket listing as an impulse, and there's all kinds of, like, I sort of heroes journeys that we can see across history where people do think well maybe i could see the blank that's why we have yeah. the first lists of the ancient wonders of the world that's mm. why the pyramids got a lot of really hot press you know <laughs> even early on and you too could visit the home of pythagoras and his famous theorem and mm. you know and then it and then when they you know built roman roads and you could you know then it became a part of the sort of pilgrim and relic trade as you could go somewhere and see st peter's you know 
29th tooth and mm. and um it was a lovely way of um of questing i guess is mm. like journeying as a way to like a like a distilling of your soul to go somewhere and discover something. Lots of times people took journeys like that because of grief. They lost something. They felt like they needed to make good on a promise. Mm. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we, we want and need to be the hero of our own stories. Yeah. I think the part that bothers me, given that I shed everywhere I go, my friend, <laughs> is, the, is the temptation to make everything into a form of experiential capitalism. Mm. And that if I collect all of these experiences that I am, which are frequently experiences that are like n- not accessible to anybody else, mm-hmm. that I will have been, that I, that, a, that a good life is a one that can be completed. Mm. And so I just was kind of, I just kept kind of fussing about the thought like, well, it's much easier to count things than to know what counts. Mm. So mm. that's what I've been, I've been fussing about that. Yeah. I think it can lead to great suffering in more ways than one. The thing you talked about is these experiences aren't accessible to a lot of people. But then also thinking that we need them in order to have some sort of complete life. And otherwise, you're what? You're wasting your life. Yeah, that's right. I hear that word a lot. Wasting, Mm. right? Mm. That's a a big, that's a heavy weight. It's gross, too, because that's another kind of value judgment, right? Oh, I'm deeming whatever you're doing as the thing you shouldn't be doing. I was sent a book right after I got sick called Don't Waste Your Cancer by a famous megachurch pastor who I'll name John Piper. And um, I Don't Waste Your Cancer... Uh, the rage that I experienced <laughs> flipping through Don't Waste yeah. Your Cancer was, uh, if I might unpack the rage feeling and the headache I'm getting right now just thinking about it, it was that um, uh, certain people will be saddled with the responsibility, especially suffering people, of like showing us, you know, they always say crap like, the dying show us how to live. It's like, well, the dying are just getting fewer choices and mm. like you might be watching, but also like don't put your bullshit meaning quests on those that like don't freight people with your existential questions we all have the same existential questions Mm, and it was like you suffering person now can't waste your life and therefore you have to find meaning and if you don't find meaning then in this particular constellation then you have you know failed the the new test of cancer Mm. and i don't know how I, i mean just if you sit in a hospital for five minutes there is so much um frailty there's so much exhaustion and there is just so much tenderness and love as people are trying to manage their own Mm. delicate bodies i'm Mm. like i feel like the second i'm sitting there for a second i just can't imagine ever writing a book called don't waste your cancer in a moment like that where like what you really just need is is like enough space for all the love to pour in not for all the like tap 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 is this timer on feeling it feels the opposite of loving yeah and and because it is it's saying, hey, there are certain requirements here, right? Yeah. And if you don't fulfill those requirements, then Hop you... to it. Yeah. yeah. You better hurry up. Yeah. And, because, and there's actually some beauty in the, the realization of yeah. we're all going to die. Yeah. That's a different thing than don't waste your cancer. Yeah. Because yeah, it is. Yeah, I ended up in the emergency room twice last year with this horrible autoimmune thing oh. I've got going on. And... and it really put th- a lot of things into perspective for me in a way that it wasn't about don't waste this, but it was about, oh, there's a, there are a lot of moments that we're 
we're barreling through. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And and yeah. You know, the weird thing about it is creating the bucket list is just a different way to barrel through those moments. That's a perfect description of that. Mm. That's exactly right. I I cuz cuz there's always this feeling, right, where you feel you realize that like minutes are turning back into moments. Right. And then mm. like all of a sudden there's magic and like time has that languid quality and because people are magic. Right. Mm. And then, and then it's not just, you know, it's not just a clock. It's like, and it's an experience and a moment. And like, to me that's, and that's, that is the stuff you just don't get to predict. And certainly you're going to miss it if you're just like sprinting through to get mm. it all done. Mm. Oh. Mm. I, I so identify with that because, and I think it's, simply acculturation i don't think this is sort of my natural default setting but especially being highly successful in the corporate world which all success is ultimately failure because you're stressed out of your mind and you talk about a different math equation here it's like once you figure out like yes working 80 hours a week and i had a boss who was on his second heart attack and third marriage mm. And he was getting ready to turn 50. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, if I work my ass off for the next 20 years, I could be him? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. And it's like, I'm barreling toward that. That's my definition of success. Yeah. So I can have a Corvette like him, mm. uh, the big house like him, you know, which I already had a too big house, but I guess I can have a bigger one, right? Mm. And, and realizing that, oh, we've been these are all sort of just cultural memes that we're being sold and it's miserable people showing us how to be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's mm. why I look up to someone like Anthony DeMello or, or Kapil Gupta or the Buddha, right? You, you, you have these examples of almost a lack of striving, mm -hmm. you know, realizing that striving is often, the problem. I kind of had yeah. this really lovely disagreement ab about that with someone I really admire. Okay. Um, well, uh, yeah, I really like, um, I, li I really like Richard Rohr. I think he is a delight. He is, uh, a, he's like this. I don't. He writes these very, just, I think you'd like him. Okay. He's, uh, writes, he's like this really loving priest. He has this retreat center and he's just kind of the like loving wide arms um, guy. That Are you trying to convert me? I just feel like there's, <laughs> if you would just open your heart. <laughs> no, he's adorable. Um, but he's also kind of very, uh, one of the, one of the questions in there and that, that list that you gave is the question of whether, right, like that striving, that, 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 that surrender to desire, uh, makes life less painful. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think a lot of people would say yes. And then I was kind of like, uh, and, uh, I kind of, I think I don't agree. Mm. Um, now, when you say surrender to desire, you can interpret that one of two ways, which is really fascinating. So one is I'm surrendering my desires, mm -hmm. meaning I'm not, yeah. uh, uh, well, I'm recognizing that desire might be the problem. That's one way to interpret that. Or it's um, whatever my desires are, I'm going to surrender to the fact that I have those desires. It sounds to me like you're talking about the former. Um, yeah, I think if I were to uh, give a little more shape to it, it would be something like that desire itself creates 
a series of expectations and that mm-hmm. that that des- that desire itself has an intimate relationship with suffering and that if you adjust your desires and create like a uh, and it, like a deeper sense of like existential acceptance that you're going to, that, that you're going to, that, that kind of solves a problem in mm, a way. Mm. And I know that a lot of neo-Buddhists, um, and in fact, you know, neo-Stoics who believe that, that like, um, that hunger itself is the thing that needs to be solved by this kind of deep acceptance. And a part of me was like, yeah, it sounds really cool. I should totally be that kind of person. <laughs> and, um, and then I realized, oh no, I don't believe that at all. Because mm. <laughs> I, I was, you know, talking to this adorable, loving, open big hearted teddy bear priest who, and I, and who, but I know priests like are like a lot of religious monastics, right? Like they, they, they embody letting things go and they Mm -hmm. have a, he's a Franciscan. And one of their main things is just giving all your stuff away and poverty is their, their favorite thing. And so he's like giving everything away. And I was like, no, no, no wait And and part of it is I was like, Hey, I just kind of feel like though this surrender thing is something that is institutionalized in your job and vocation, which mm. is you, you, you gave up on not having kids or belongings or et cetera. I just have to say that like, I can give up on the materialism. I can give up on the like fancy stuff and the nice, et cetera. Mm. And the, the feeling of shininess, the status, but right. the shit I can't get rid of. Mm. And because is, is the stuff that the better I do it, the more painful my life is going to get. The more I love my kid, the more tenderly with which I embrace like the beauty of the world and all the people I get to meet, Mm -hmm. the more I am like desperately in love with like being alive, the more awful it is (laughs) to let it go. And so maybe actually if I'm doing it right, my life is just going to get harder. And so I think I'm a little more on that side. That's fascinating to me because I'm on the opposite side of that. I, I think but I, I here's where I think we form a detente. Is <laughs> like, I, will, I, will, I will negotiate a truce <laughs> between the sides. I liked your hands that came together. There. I, I, I agree. Compromise hands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree that we, um, as humans, when we sort of practice austerity, that's the Franciscan thing, right? There is a the doing of austerity is not the same thing as experiencing. Well, I think when I said, Hey, which I keep saying to these lovely neo Buddhists, Hey, do you think if I stop desiring in this way, even if it's desiring love that my life will be, it'll kind of solve the problem of pain. And they're like, and I think that is mostly the story of Siddhartha and the young like Buddha story is, is like, and then he surrendered and, and then this, in this deep acceptance. And I was like, is this going to solve the problem? That's that's the solution to pain. And they're like, yeah. And I was like, I don't feel like I'm ever going to do that. Mm. I don't either. I, so I agree with yeah. you on that. Yeah. So then we are on the same part of the table again. <laughs> and I feel like we need to go after the the people who think the desire is ever going to be not lead to just more and more mm. obsession with love. Yeah. So, so love, what does it mean to love? Well, <laughs> first of all, I'm positive I'm going to die of empathy, right? It's like, I just love what I love people. It's just like, then my heart explodes mm. and then like, then unicorns are created and mm. yeah, it's, it's awful. It's mm. all, it's just awful. Love is the worst. It's just, it's <laughs> going to make everything terrible. <laughs> See, I, I, I think, yeah, and we try to tackle this and, and love people use things, but the, we have a, a bit of a language problem in a way. So we say like, oh, I love my wife, but then, hey, Ryan, you see my new toaster? Yeah, I love it. 
I love my new toaster. Yeah. I do love bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. See, let's pause. Let's slow just down. be honest. Let's take bread off the table or something. And I think we're talking about three different things here. One is like extreme like. Like, I really like my toaster. When we say love, it's a colloquial way to say extreme like. Yeah. The other way that we use love is when we're talking about loving. I love my wife. Quite often, it's like I have a deep attachment to my wife. Mm. But Anthony DeMello would say, well, attachment is what blocks love. Attachment is unloving. And and when I look at love, I, I perceive love as like what the, you know, you, you had all those people come in at that moment and they were, they, they were just there with you. And, and there wasn't a trying to change you. Well, there was. They were like, please help this lady not die of cancer. Yeah. Absolutely. There was intercessory <laughs> prayer as in like, dear God, divine force, make this whole thing not happen. It was mm. absolutely pushy and mm. uh, situation changing. Mm. Oh, I, I didn't I was, get that. That was, seems unloving to me. Mm. Yeah, no, I think it's pretty loving to <laughs> okay. not want someone to die of cancer. Sure. I mean, to want them to die of cancer is, it would, would, I would not be very loving. unloving. Yes. Yeah. yes. I, would, I, would put, I would put wanting to change things in people also as pretty loving depending on what we're kind of pain we're talking about oh wow like you know a, all the language around addiction right is is in that like, people are trying to find the right way to communicate love without knowing you can entirely make decisions on behalf of others but the desire for transformation mm -hmm. both in ourselves and others makes us is part of that limited agency place that you agreed that we love <laughs> <laughs> so i think limited agency means that we it's i mean in religious terms religious terms mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's what we <laughs> call sanctification you know mm -hmm. like the little little tiny little bits in which we don't want to be what we are yeah. we want to be something and that's a moreness that mm. i don't hate we want to be something more something yeah. lovelier kinder gentler softer less of a dick mm. yeah. and i want all those things for other people and i'm gonna be really bossy about it isn't it funny though you want something more but you said being less of a dick i think mm -hmm. uh, that more that we desire is an enoughism that usually is uncovered with some sort of subtraction i it guess it depends this is like a whole theory on virtue formation and like i i, I, I think it de honestly depends which virtue we're talking about like each virtue names a more and a lessness in a different way like when they talk about um I don't know, like they talk about gluttony or like like too much of something mm -hmm. then becomes a burden. And then that one is a is, a, is an addition by subtraction in the way that you're describing. But other virtues right. are an addition by addition. Yes. <laughs> where it's like, just do more of this thing, mm -hmm. a lot more. Mm. I think it depends what virtue we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't seem like we're ever talking about, and maybe we are, uh, or maybe you are, I'm not sure, but improvement in the traditional sense. Like yeah. to me, a lot of yeah. that seems like quite the scam. The... Because we never try to improve a baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Crawl faster. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I want pudgier cheeks. <laughs> and, and stop, <laughs> stop looking at me with your googly beautiful beautiful eyes. <laughs> and, and and yet, there's some point where we are are then taught, you know, at some age, you need maybe it's post pubescent humans. Now you need to improve, right? Mm. Now you're in. I don't know what incompleted yeah. me. Testosterone, perhaps, <laughs> um, but something made me less complete, or at least according to society. And now, what do we need? We need to improve upon it. Mm. And then we spend years or decades improving ourselves just to realize, like, oh crap! I mean, it manifests in our culture and stuff a lot. You know, average yeah. American household has three hundred thousand items in it. 
that doesn't happen overnight. It's just, I'll buy this, I'll yeah, buy this, I'll buy this. Yeah, but if people fold it, it's smaller in a drawer. I feel mm. like if you were managed to <laughs> yeah. Right. Isn't that like a whole story I, I believed at one point? <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't have the right folding technique. <laughs> oh, man. And, and, and yeah, if I just tidy up, if I just oh, organize I've got to organize things. it, and then this door is for that. Mm. That'll and, solve it. And while yeah. there's nothing wrong with doing those things, thinking it solves something, the solution then becomes the problem. And, and because we're constantly seeking these these solutions and not actually getting to the root of the problem. What is the root of the problem? Well, I believe that these things are going to make me more complete. Mm. And I think the same is true with virtually any of these other things that we do to complete ourselves or improve ourselves. There's something where we, we've created a void and now we're trying to fill it with something. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I think like healthy detachment from certain things, the cessation of desire is what Buddhists would say about mm-hmm. that is sounds like there's a lot of wisdom in there. It's just, yeah, I just, but I, 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 I think honestly, this is where different religious and philosophical traditions, like they just really have different ideas about how, yeah. how, like the degree to which we are supposed to change and how it happens. Mm. And I, am in a tradition that has a big debate about um, the degree to which we ever, ever participate in. I mean, we would say like saving ourselves, just meaning transforming into something that's hopefully lovelier. Mm. And, um, you know, and one, one set of traditions inside that is in the, um, is in the like they, it's, we call it like radical justification, which is just like I'm sorry, you're a piece of garbage. God's gonna have to do all of the work, <laughs> and then the and then the complete other side, which is like, hey, congratulations, you're super close to perfection. Let's just see if we can push this over the finish line, right. <laughs> and um, which is conveniently called Christian perfectionism, mm-hmm. and like I I just I, I'm always I'm so interested in how we how, like the the like. I'm interested in the bits of surrender because I do feel like there's just so many parts of our um, cultural acclimation that you're describing that make us um, that, that that almost require an intervention. They were like, they we need to be rescued from ourselves. Sometimes, if I look deep inside my heart, I sometimes just mostly find terrible ideas. <laughs> and we're like, look inside. I'm like, oh, I feel like inside there, there's some really <laughs> bad ideas. <laughs> there's a band I wanted to start. Mm. So. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's like an ancient question that Mm. I, that, but I, none of it to me feels like it's, you know, solves the fundamental problem of like, that's why I kept saying that there's no cure to being human, Mm. but like our finitude, our desires, our hopes, they're just, they're, they're in there. And like, there's no outside solution to that. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I'm just having this thought of like the Buddha, Anthony DeMello, Kapil Gupta, they are giving advice on how to avoid suffering. Right? Is that, am I, is, is that a true statement? Yeah, I, mean, I think the insights, but yes. Yeah, are true. Uh, yeah, an insight. So, but then I look at like the, you know, uh, Christianity, Jesus, and that teaching is, it is to let go of certain things, but it's not to avoid suffering as much as it is to figure out how to love more as a, as a human. And I just think that, you know, to, to, to be human is to suffer. I mean, that's, that's what Buddha would say. To cling. Yeah. yeah, So, yeah. So I guess it's like, I don't know. Um, Personally, I'm not scared of suffering. I'm not, I I don't walk through, because if I was scared of suffering, then I wouldn't drive down the road. You know, I wouldn't, there's a lot of things I wouldn't do to avoid the suffering. So for me, there are certain attachments, I guess, whether it's like loving my wife or 
whatever it is, like I'm okay with risking it because I don't, I'm not scared to suffer, I guess, if that makes sense. Even if I do suffer, I can still get to a place of like, oh, wow, like how lucky am I to like even, you know, to have an experience like this. So, Well, you recognize that suffering is neither good nor bad. Oh, it's bad. It's terrible. (laughs) I'm talking about morally. It's not uh, a morally (laughs) bad thing, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) Well, and and therefore to be virtuous, you cannot suffer. But we see these leaders, right? Mm. And it's like... No, I'm with you. the, 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 The opposite of suffering is virtue. Mm. That's right. That's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Yeah. And and what's fascinating about that is, well, all these people you're talking about, you know, a- Anthony DeMello, for example, says, mm-hmm. "Use your suffering to ease your suffering." I feel like I should have. I feel like as part of our prep kit, like I should have read Anthony DeMello before coming on this. <laughs> yeah. Podcast. Well, I mean, I, I, I can give you any of his books. I have stacks of them. The only <laughs> the only reason I'm I'm like trying to talk this out like yeah. this is because I'm trying to because you, you you both are coming to the same conclusion but from two different ends of it and it's uh yeah i'm just trying to get there like how like why is it that josh is on the one end and you're on the other it's it's it is this um i don't know there's something there's something there with how how you guys view suffering like because i don't think i'm just thinking of your comment about Mm -hmm. like you're not afraid of suffering Mm -hmm. and i don't know i don't want to suffer i don't know enough about you to know (laughs) um (laughs) to be able to have some fun specifics right now but i think what i um Suffering meaning not just like the sort of individualism of like of, of pain or or even like just how we manage fear. It mm. sounds like you have a spirit of um, openness sure. about what yeah. what life is going to bring, and there's a wider range of maybe acceptable risks that you're willing to take because you want to live in that kind yeah. of more generous place. Is that yeah. a solid read on you? Yeah, after, absolutely. Yeah, after yeah. this amount of time For together, sure, yeah. does that feel right? Hundred percent. Okay, I would agree with that. I guess what I'm. I guess where I just, I, and I agree with you, I've really tried to kind of expand that place a bit and be like, mm. I'm, I just can't be the person who, um, I have to, I have to spend a lot of work right-sizing fear because, mm. because sickness or undiagnosed things or ever being in the hot, like all that stuff conspires to make us afraid. Yes. And then, right. and I've tried to, I've tried to, to tell myself like, look, our fears are instructive insofar as they show us exactly what we love. They show us exactly what we're scared we can't live without. Yeah. And so my fears shine a flashlight on all my big loves. Mm. Um, I think the, the, the problem that I hear a lot from people when they're like, hey, you're suffering, the problem, well, the solution to that is, I think I, right. what I'm protesting is the, the sentence, but the solution to that is. Yes. Amen. This yeah. is um, exactly where we agree. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. I... I, uh, cause, cause, cause in your world, it wouldn't just be, you know, you, you know, your ability to live with acceptance and generosity, but because you're in a web of mm. people who love you mm. and their suffering would be intolerable to you. Yeah. And like that, that to me, the more we are absolutely madly in love and carried by this like web of loves, Mm. the more it means that like there, there doesn't really get to be a solution to anything that doesn't affect everybody else. And so that's when I was talking to the priest when I was like, Hey, but you don't, like you took yourself out of a web and like, I'm trying to put myself more and more in one. Right. Yeah. That's the thing with minimalism quite often is the reason that it's different from say asceticism or because the, the Franciscan monks are essentially ascetics, right? Or or monastics, whatever you want to call it. And 
that's removing oneself from society, and that's not wrong or bad mm-hmm. or whatever. It's a preference. And then there are other people where it's like, how can I live more deliberately within society, mm-hmm. right? Because I think where I agree with the monks or, or whomever is yeah. society has corrupted us in so many ways that we don't even realize, we're not awake to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think with what Ryan is talking about here is you're not seeking out suffering. Of course not. A- and I think the... I think what all these people will say, whether it's Buddha or, or, or Jesus, is there's there's something with this. We're all making ourselves miserable, and we don't realize how much we're suffering. Even yeah. when you're so steeped in that suffering, mm-hmm. it's everyday commonplace suffering yeah. that we don't even realize it. Mm. How how much pain we're in. Yeah, and and yet, um, it's not. So it's not about avoiding the suffering so much as about avoiding seeking out suffering. That's the distinction I, I would make. Hmm. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I also hear you. <laughs> both, both two. You, you don't, because what you just, the, the, that, that response there, <coughs> you, you didn't hear what I said. Well, uh, well, let me, let's, let's unpack it a little bit. So uh, what I heard you say was, you know, uh, like loving, so like having an, a deep attachment to my wife, that would be seeking suffering. Uh, that's 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 the way I, that like anything like whether it's hope any expectations that mm-hmm. i form mm-hmm. what you're mm-hmm. what you're positing what i heard you posit is that that is seeking suffering and that's what i'm saying i hear you i hear that that's what you're saying yeah but i mm-hmm. i'm just falling on a different mm-hmm. on a different perspective on on what you said that's that's what i mean by right. I hear you yeah so so these were let's set aside those words hope and an attachment because we've assigned those things are good, and let's let's set those aside. For that. And, and there are other things mm-hmm. where we agree on this, right? Where sure. where it's like, okay, we, we realize that status seeking, pleasure seeking, um, would be seeking suffering. Yes, to an extent. Yeah, to, to seek pleasure is to seek suffering. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with pleasure as a yeah. byproduct. Nothing wrong with joy mm-hmm. as a byproduct. But right. So yeah, often I guess it depends if you think that um well because some things like that are not really considered byproducts I guess in, in like depending on which ancient tradition you're following there sure. yeah. um they're they're considered kind of like the they, the metaphor they always use are like fruits but they're just like the the lovely gifts that happen when certain virtues are allowed to grow and that's yeah. kind of why I like the language of transformation and like not perfectionism and not Mm -hmm. like striving, but like, but small choices that help us shape our desires towards something really beautiful. And then, and then those things like joy or they are in the Christian tradition Mm -hmm. described as like little kind of like glitter bursts you get where they're just like, and now even though you're in a horrible situation, you get joy. (laughs) And um, I, I guess what I love about that is, I guess there's kind of like sort of the parallel track of like, sounds like sounds like this table doesn't like um, endless, exhausting, materialistic, self perfectionist, self mastery bullshit. Right. May Amen. I yeah. Just feel like that feels 100%. like we all don't like that. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm and in this way 100. percent But 
I think that the, the sort of parallel question, and I just love that you use the word hope because mm-hmm. I think that is where people kind of diverge on what we're hopeful about. Mm-hmm. Like, are we hopeful that we can kind of create uh, like on a, a mindset and awareness that um, makes the world less painful and more beautiful? Mm-hmm. That's one. Yeah. But like I have a, I mean, I, I believe for me, hope is an anchor that's set in the future. Yeah. That's a story that's about God and to- it's about us. Totally agree. So in that way, it's always different than like, I'm just, I don't know if that's your belief, but like when I talk to like the neo-Stoics or like some neo-Buddhists, depending on how theistic they are, sure. like we don't agree at all on hope. Right. Hope for them mm-hmm. is like a cultivate, like it's in the, in, in some versions, it's just another form of individualism. It's like, I've gotten to a certain place where I, can live with a certain posture. And for Mm. me, this is always a story that's about me and it's, it's not about me. And and so for them, they'd say that hope is like a fancy term for expectations. Yeah. And I think that there, cause I, I feel like the themes are always hope and courage. Right. And I feel like what we're all trying Mm. to do right now, especially in this age is to figure out how to live with a little more courage. Like if we took away a little less, could I show up in my life in a way that is like, powerful and less and puts fear in its place and that just has a badass quality to it that i really like courage i'm on board with i think we have to have courage if we know we can't fix life with all of this extra crap yes i think what we often i often find i disagree with people on is is just that hope i mean that if when i think i'm hopeful when i Mm -hmm. believe in a story about hope i'm hoping that i can live in such a way that i can be that sort of person but Mm -hmm. i'm also hoping that like that 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 the world and our our big story is being moved t- toward um, being saved by love, and mm. that love won't just be my special feelings. And so that's yeah, that to me is why hope is always an anchor. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. I mean, hope I look at as like a tool. It is an expectation. And correct me if I'm wrong, Melly, but like this, the uh, the mystics would say hope is essentially suffering. Yeah, it it leads to suffering. Right. I mean, because, because, because it's an expectation. We, it's it's tethering us as. Mm-hmm. Kay said t- to the future in, in a way, mm-hmm. and the, so the courage seems sort of like it, it's in the moment, right? You know, fear also appears in the moment. There are two different types of fear, right? There's this sort of immediate fear of a bear walks through the door. All of a sudden, it's the immediate danger. It's the response to immediate danger, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that is in the moment fear. Most of us in society that's not what we are we fear we fear oh my god i can't believe bitcoin can you see what might happen to my coinbase account <laughs> oh what am i gonna do ryan what am i gonna do i'm so yeah. afraid and, and it's like we're afraid of all these things that you know, are effectively inconsequential yes um it, it oh i hope my coinbase goes up this month right mm-hmm. yeah and, and and so we can, <laughs> as soon as we start dressing up hope and some of these absurdities, we can start to realize some of the absurdity of hope. Yeah. Ooh, and that's why a good it, podcast title. Yeah. Um, and why it does lead to suffering. And that's why, that's why I'm saying that hope I look at is like a tool. So yes. the way you're talking about using it is going to probably lead to suffering. And I do not seek out suffering. Um, the way, uh, the, the way that you're talking about it is, in, is, is, is this, um, it keeps you... Uh, focused on the result that you want and you can positively, you know, s- reach that result basically. No. Cause I think um, if we think of, I think I, d- I, I don't think hope is expectation mm. insofar as it's 
uh, my own personal ability to get there. Right. I guess, right. I guess the, I guess the, the feeling I have with hope is that feeling you get when, sorry for just sounding very 2am postful. I'm like, <laughs> you know, sometimes when, but, um, <laughs> but it's the feeling that time is a circle, right? Yeah. That in this, in the future, that there is the transformation of ourselves in the world. Mm-hmm. And like, that is a, that is a meta story that I believe in. Mm-hmm. And to mm-hmm. me, that is, that is a story of like, love and transformation. Mm-hmm. And that is, that, that's what I mean when I say hope. Mm. It's just, um, it like the degree to which I get to participate in that, it kind of depends on how wildly successful I am right now. Just <laughs> <joking>. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. Well, we have, um, we have some, we some solved it guys. Yeah, I, think we we did. It. Right. I just, we didn't know what it was <laughs> and now we, uh, no one can have problems again. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, we have some surprise questions here. Podcast, Sean, put them together. Let's figure out who we're going to go with first. Mm. How about April's question here? All right. What do you do about the overwhelming expectation that surviving something traumatic like cancer should lead you to a joyous epiphany <laughs> and a constant positive outlook on life? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> that reminds me of I was um I was like I I had had like moments for a bit where I felt really like loving and magnanimous and kind of just like not quite scraping the ground. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I have an amazing perspective now. Like (laughs) I'm going to stay like this Mm, forever. mm. And then of course, like four months after I was like Mm. petty and gossipy and kind of rude and Mm. condescending. Um, and I was like, Oh crap. (laughs) Oh, I guess that, that feeling goes away. Um, I was, so I was talking to my friend, Laura, who's a wise person and a therapist. And she was like, Oh honey, like, you're, you're going to feel a lot of pressure to have a lot of perspective and you're going to feel a lot of pressure. to feel like you figure it out, but like mm. you've had moments that have felt real and rich and true, right? Yes. But none of it really felt like Disneyland, did it? Mm. And I was like, no, mm. it did not. I used to, as part of my cancer treatment, um, have to spend a day every week in the airport and I always got stuck next to the Disneyland to stop the the, the like non-stop to Orlando Florida oh. where I watched people about to experience the most magical moment of their lives and then the rapid de-evolution of that moment where like parents have paid out like small mortgages and all their kids are running around with Mickey Mouse ears and then like one day I always envied them I thought like a person with perspective is going to feel balanced and grateful all the time and really be able to be there mm. and then I saw this dad wearing Mickey Mouse ears turn around lose his ever-living mind on his two kids and go we are going to make some memories damn it and then i realized so that um yeah that no one that that perspective comes and goes mm-hmm. and that especially after you've been through something you're unfortunately going to be as as human as everybody else yeah oh wow mm. so the, the fascinating thing about this, you know, the, the trauma and even the the word here is surviving something traumatic. Mm. What, what do you think about that language yeah. around this question? Right. Well, right. Because I always found like people's encouragement to me, like to kick cancer's ass or like survivor or like, first of all, what if like most of us, in, in our, that our problems are not episodic, but they're chronic. Mm. What happens when we're defined by the things we'll never really get over? Mm. And then are we still part of that triumphant victor narrative? No. So then maybe we should question the narrative and, and have a minute to say, like, well, one, most of, the, most of being sick or managing life is, 
is ha- things happening to you with drugs you didn't invent in your room and have very little control over <laughs> in a health insurance system that will <laughs> likely bankrupt you. And so um, I, 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 I find the like, that is part of the deep, hard thing about being a patient is like even the word patient means to like endure. And, and then there's moments where you kind of need to go into like hyper action. Like even me, guys, now we know each other gentle Canadian me grabbed a surgeon by the collar, pulled him really close to my eyes mm. after he had um, sent me home with Pepto-Bismol mm. and almost let me die of stage four cancer. And then I, I w- grabbed him really close to my face and said, I'd better not die looking into your eyes. Mm. And then all the nurses burst out laughing and then mm. I was so happy. So we're never <laughs> sure whether we're supposed to be patient to endure or to act. And I think, I think just having a little less... Vic, like victor winner surviving cancer and a little more realizing that all of it is just the act of discerning how to be a patient is mm. it helps me yeah these sort of war metaphors the battling and <laughs> surviving and, and, and i get it i get the impulse mm-hmm. right i yeah i, I understand the, the desire to because to be victorious is virtuous and therefore, the implication of that is what? Yeah. To not be victorious is a type of failure. Yeah. Yeah. And if you get cancer, now you're a loser. Right. And yeah. There's some, if you lose the fight, then there's, or if you're losing the fight, there's something you're doing wrong. And right. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, I have found, I was a little surprised by how I didn't just feel scared and sad. I felt ashamed. A lot, and that kind of that surprised me. Mm. What were you ashamed of? Um, part of it was just that it kept going so badly that, like, I thought, like, part of it was like I just I never I hadn't been able to solve the problem, and I had this, you know, I went from like begging for care and then suddenly being diagnosed with something so terrible. So I just felt like, wow, this went out of control. That must be my fault. The deep, um, the amount of comments I got slash get about how it probably is my fault. Mm-hmm. So things I've eaten, I must be fat, I must be, um, it's always something I've done spiritually, environmentally, mm. dietarily. Um, I, I mean, I, I was wheeled into a procedure recently and had the nurse make a comment like that. Well, it must be the my uh, my oncologist who I'm trying if you can hear this, very hard to get rid of, um, mentioned that she thought I'd given myself cancer by um, drinking Diet Coke in the 90s, even though aspartame is, has absolutely no, 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 no documented correlation to colon cancer. Oh, wow. So everybody is telling me it's my fault, so that, that may be why I feel that way. Mm. Right, and you're doing the wrong things, therefore if you do the right things... I wouldn't have had this problem in the first place. I wouldn't be a young person. I wouldn't be... And also, I just think it's it, like the other bit that feels like shame is, is the fact that we don't have the, we don't have the support structures to support suffering people because the social services are just so thin. And so, I mean, the the the, the top kind of bankruptcy is is, is medical bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. So suffering people are the thing that detonates and takes everybody else around them away. It just obliterates the security of everyone that we love. That's right. And so you f- you feel like the bad thing because in that moment, like you're the thing that's happening to everyone, wow. and it is so hard not to feel deeply shameful mm. about that. Mm. We have a question here from Simon. 
<clears throat> where do you draw the line between genuine self-improvement and toxic positivity? Mm. I think this question presupposes that we are supposed to improve, and we've already sort of talked about this a little bit, mm -hmm. but that presupposing that I am incomplete and therefore I can complete myself is part of the problem of the sort of toxic positivity. So in a way, I don't know there's a line to draw. It's like, where do you draw a line in the stew? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, hmm. kind of gets our, us back to our debate about transformation. I'm still hoping for, I'm still hoping for some transformation, I guess. Um, but I, uh, but most of the obvious solutions, like productivity, like the sweet, sweet siren song, capitalism, like <laughs> most of those things will be, or even like um, we haven't talked about the the glories of YOLO. And a lot of like the hyper presentism makes yeah. me want to punch people in the esophagus. Well, good luck trying to be present, <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's happening now, now, now. Right. right. In fact, we're trying to do present. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Can't you feel it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Quick, Ryan, <laughs> do now. <laughs> okay. And Am I doing it right? <laughs> and I say this as someone who has a film on Netflix called Less Is Now. <laughs> um, and, and, and well, yet, yeah. hopefully that's an observation. <laughs> that's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> there is an old. Now is just a metaphor. And now I want us to all walk out to the. Isn't there like all we have is now song? Because that'd be a new uh, song. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It'd be yeah. really. Rock we could anthem. sing it if I you feel, know. It. I feel it has a real rock anthem. <laughs> so, well, you know, I think about self improvement. It's like wh why, like if we can ask ourselves why are we trying to self improve? I think that's what can help us draw that line. You know, it'd be amazing better. though if we were like, why should I change? And then like, <laughs> they, and then we invite six people who know us to come in and they're yeah, like, right, actually, right, right. <laughs> well, you're kind of selfish on the phone. You're like, everybody <laughs> you're just like has dick. their, yeah, yeah. meant to tell you about your, yeah. yeah. I, think, I think if we're surrounded by people, people do think that we probably could change a bit. Yeah. Right, right. Well, but uh, no, well, then there's no doubt about it. Everyone wants sure. you to change, right? And that's yeah. why I, the thinking that, you know, wanting other people to change is, almost like a default setting in our culture, right? There's a line in, in our new book, uh, you can't change the people around you, but you can change the people around you. <laughs> Meaning like, yeah, good luck trying to change. I mean, you can change someone's habits. I can hold a gun to Ryan's head and say, eat more salad or mm -hmm. whatever, right? Yeah. Drink less Diet Coke. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and <laughs> you're going to do that as long as you're compelled by externalities to do that, but it doesn't actually change the person mm. changing the behavior doesn't change the person right yeah. and and so wait a minute there's <laughs> an entire school of behavioral therapy about that <laughs> they would disagree yes they would yeah. i remember behavior i got very tired of behavioralism because i i was like you know it helped me with a lot of things most of my deep canadian habits were like inability to be direct about basic needs <laughs> like there was some stuff that behaviorally was helpful <laughs> but after a bit i was like yeah this outside in project is like not really altering, like altering the deep kind of questions and, mm. and fears that I have or, you know, the shame. So mm. it doesn't create that transformation that you're talking about. I was kind of hoping for it though. Right. I like really put my time on it. If I just do these 17 <laughs> things. Yeah. But like if seriously, if you gave me a list of 17 things, I'd make fun of you. And then I would quietly be like, I should really consider it. <laughs> but because here's Let's the thing. Try a few of them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand. <laughs> the how to things work really well for mechanical things. So it's like, if you want to learn 
how to build a bike, yeah. a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a how-to list is great for that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But if I want to become Lance Armstrong, then oh no, any how-to <laughs> list is not going to help yeah. me with that. Too soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> May he rest in <laughs> peace. Well, yeah, well I, th- I think about like... <laughs> I, th- I think about, uh, I don't know, like the, the self-improvement that I have on my mind right now is like, yeah. Yeah, uh, I went surfing yesterday yeah. and I'm like, well, when I say I go, I went surfing, I practice surfing. I don't really like actually surf. He like, practices falling off a surfboard. <laughs> right, exactly. Awesome. exactly yeah. Good for you. But you know, it's like I'm out there paddling and paddling and paddling and I'm like, man, if I was like 10 pounds lighter, this would be so, I could do this so much better. You know, or if I just had a little bit more endurance. And the problem is, is like, I don't have the regular exercise routine that I used to have. Like I broke my back two years ago and I've never been able, what I shouldn't say I haven't been able to, I just haven't made it a priority to get back into the shape that I was in before I broke my back. So I'm out there and I'm like, oh wow. Like this is, this is a symptom for me of like, I need to, uh, if I want to surf the way that I want to surf, there's a level of self-improvement I have to do. And I have to commit to that. So that's what I mean when I say, like, why are you trying to self-improve? If I'm trying to self-improve because Josh is like, yeah, yeah man, you need to whatever, you know. Yeah, and I, well, Josh says I need to do this. I mean, th- there's a difference between, yeah. yeah, there's a difference between, like, this external driver of self-improvement versus, like, what's going on inside of us and why do we want to self-improve. Oftentimes, I mean, I think people get stuck on the self-improvement train because... Yeah. I mean, like we've been saying this whole, you know, podcast and the minimal episode is society like dictates you have to constantly be self-improving. That's right. It feels like we're getting, I mean, it's, it feels like we're getting somewhere. It's such a night. I mean, to me, it just reminds me that like we're addicted to the experience of control and that we'll create it out of anything. Yeah. And I, you know, I, 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 I want the control of feeling like just, I want these little incremental steps and that's how I know that I'm still in the driver's seat. Addicted to the experience of control. And then when things go right. Oh, look at me. Can, yeah. Ah. Yeah. Then we can get on the pedestal and be like, ah, I have hey it then. all figured it's out. It's weird how put together yeah. I am. And I'd very much like to explain it to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I see like you immediately create like a small cult oh, out of it. Man. You're like, oh, this junk drawer, finally. You know what's <laughs> funny? The, the older I get, like the, the less I have it figured out. It's so like you start out, you know, like teens and you've got it all figured out in your twenties and you're like, yeah, I got it. And then yeah. but it's like the more and more I get older, the more and more I look in the yeah. mirror, I'm like, you have no idea what the hell you're doing, man. <laughs> like, well, I, I had assigned an age to that because I was, I was so scared of dying at 35. I was just like, okay, well, like I just need to figure out how to get to a certain age and I will have, I'll, I'll, I'll fix, I'll, I'll like do all the stuff in that <laughs> amount of time. And I'll like, I just want to lock it down. And I remember talking, because I, I work in a very geriatric profession. So I was at some point like 30 to 40 years younger than my adorable mm. professor colleagues. And um, so I'm looking at these like uh, wonderful older friends. And I'm like, so well, like, what year was it? Just give me like, let me know when you hit peak, whatever it was. <laughs> and then after that, it's bonus. Like, just give me the whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was like, I just need to, and I was like, I just need to get to 50. And so much of it was just like, I just want to get my kid to a certain age. I want to launch him everything. I like, I love that kid more than any, than, than love feels possible. And, um, and then this older man who I just love, he was like, Oh, but Kate, like it comes undone. Mm. Mm. Like, and he had had all these moments in his life where he like, he had it. It just, he had, he had 
tied off every knot, you know, and then it just unraveled. Mm. And then I was like, oh, so there isn't an age. (laughs) (laughs) I still kind of like, honestly, it kind of hurts my heart a bit when like, Mm. when I can't, when I know there isn't like a, I know there isn't like a finish line on, on that. Yeah. Because I, I have like a desperate desire to feel like, well, I'm not going to get the extra stuff, but just make sure, let me just make sure I get the like, yeah, the main stuff done. The completionist (sighs) mindset. What do you, what do you mean? (laughs) Take that away from me. (laughs) Uh, Man, there's so many other questions we have here, but we're running short on time. Let's, let's try to get through a few here. Here's one of my favorites because of the irony of the question. (laughs) This one's from Gloria. How, how does the toxic positivity in the U.S compare with other nations oh, yeah. <laughs> which is the most american way to ask yeah, that yeah. question are we, are we better or worse <laughs> yeah are we the worse. best uh, yeah. toxic uh, positivity you guys are the most toxic congratulations oh, you are though for real yeah no yeah. well it's funny because i've heard i've actually heard a lot like yeah. europeans specifically they're like you guys are all you guys are way too positive life yeah. is not that amazing and you know, you uh, you think you can do anything, yeah. but the, here's the thing: is we can do anything. <laughs> I have never heard an American not end that sentence that way. That's so funny to hear you say that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like the, the development of the positive thinking movement, of which I am a historian, mm. um, is uh, it was an American. Um, it was a confluence of mm-hmm. American obsession with bootstrapping, mm-hmm. American um, beliefs about uh, sort of democratic individualism. It's obsessively supernatural beliefs in the power of the mind mm, and the mm-hmm. nascent discipline of psychology. And then it always gets combined with the metaphysical strand, which is why you end up just getting why astrology is mm. such a big deal right now. Oh. It's the same feeling. And that's why everything's always going to turn out. And that's how we know. And we figured it out. Yeah. It seems to be a purity component to all of this as well. Um, so I'm positive because, well, we see that as like um, that person is well good or pure, right? And the negative person is the opposite of that, right? Where it's, I, and I think that we mistake the, uh, man, this is so frustrating because I'm a really positive person, but I try to never affect a faux positivity, mm-hmm. but also recognizing that the opposite of that is if I'm feeling sad, I don't have to lash out in toxic negativity, mm-hmm. right? Which is the blaming, the shaming, the name calling, the complaining, the otherizing people, right? Yeah. And so I, I don't know. It, it seems to me that, that there's this puritanical piece of all of this that yeah, we're aspiring toward. Yeah. Yeah, disciplining. Yeah, it is very it, it does have a that's a really sharp punitive edge. Yeah. Mm. And I I mean, but the and I would describe toxic positively just as like a definition of ideologies as an obsessive um focus on on the power of the mind and that you have to speak positively and think positively in order to affect it. Yeah. That kind of that kind of belief squeezes out the ability to use other language realistically. Mm. And um, so, so yeah, I mean, it, it has a huge gender component. It is, it is settled upon the uh, women more than men. Mm. Um, but yeah, performing a disciplined, positive speech is like it. It is. Uh, it is. It. It is a full time job. I'm having this thought right now of like in America how 
we do have this constant improvement and or this attitude of like constantly improving everything. Yeah. Constantly getting better, being number one. We're number one. I mean, this is like an American ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, we, <laughs> it's almost like, I feel like it's going to be our undoing because. Oh, you mean when the earth plague came and, and then America refused corporate solutions <laughs> and, and because it's inability to create borders between things and in states' rights that it yeah, prevented some, having a collective like solution to the yes, yes, yes. concept of public health. But it will be, yeah, it'll, it'll, it's like it's almost our undoing because... you yes. got a communist over here. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, let's shut this down. Yeah. Dab, dab, dab. No. Let's turn that mic off. Thankfully, well, you didn't have that memory card in, right, Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, a couple more here. Uh, <laughs> let's go to Lisa's question, Ryan. Let's do it. How do we deal with the frustration that arises when people insist that our trauma is a gift? Oh, I love how frustration arises because that is the great way to put that. Yes, it's not that someone else is frustrating me; it's yes. arising within me. Yes. Now, um, I this question really stood out to me because I have a lot of people in my life who tried to traumatize me. And what I mean by that is they, they want to assign some trauma to some event that isn't particularly traumatic to me. Like, yeah. I understand why it might be perceived as traumatic to you. Yeah. and Because I've had my own trauma in my own life. And, but the thing that uh, about it is, like, I always have, we had uh, Lori Gottlieb on the podcast yeah. uh, a few months ago. And um, the, the thing that was fascinating is we were talking about trauma. And I... It's almost as though people want to hand you trauma. Say, that should be trauma. The thing you went through there, that should be traumatizing to you. And if you're not <laughs> acknowledging, if you don't acknowledge it as traumatizing, then you're repressing your uh, trauma. That just sounds like someone really projecting all over you. Y- right. Like, th- here's, and not only that, but they're like, well, here, so h- here's, the, here's the, the thing you need to see. And once you see that, I have an answer for this thing. Like right. It's, it's, yeah, there's all types of wrong with people projecting that trauma on you. Yeah. Well, especially, and I'm not an expert in trauma studies, but my limited understanding is that it's like the, it's an incongruity that prevents the processing of a certain kind of pain. And only you would know mm. if you had that incongruity. Right. Mm. So. And so there are things that are traumatizing to me that, that most people look at and say, how that, <laughs> yeah. that's not trauma at all. Why? And, and so <laughs> like when I spill a little coffee on the table, oh. very traumatic for, <laughs> for, Josh. About that for weeks. Like, We're going to shut that down. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody out. <laughs> and, and so I wanted to apply this to you and in, in your circumstance, because there's obviously some trauma associated with, with this, or at least not obviously, but I would assume there is. Um, but I don't think that you should have a particular reaction to it. Um, can you talk about some of the trauma that you've gone through in the last several years? Yeah, well, I, and I, and I think trying to learn the difference between pain and suffering and trauma has been like quite an education for me. Mm. Um, and so I guess, uh, yeah, cause it's such an American, uh, idiom, right? That pain is, what is it? Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. <laughs> so oh, wow. I've never heard that before. That sound like an Tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> it is terrible. <laughs> it's deeply pernicious. Um, so I, I, I guess like trying to sort out the difference when, because um, a lot of the, the, the things that turned out to be trauma- traumatic were about um, needing to have trusted figures in my life, especially doctors who believed me 
and then acted with urgency about what I was describing. Mm -hmm. And most of my experience with being sick has been being not believed and then being told that it must be the stress mm -hmm. of being a young female professor. It's mm. finally getting to me. Mm. And, um, and so um, not being believed and then having to be like, operated on by the person who then who ignored you or like there's there's a there's a weird trust fall feeling of just I mean my problem but anybody's problem where most of us can't fix our own problems mm. um and so uh yeah so I I found the ones in which I was I was helpless and dependent on somebody who didn't who, who didn't act who didn't deserve my trust mm. was what created the most trauma and so I started going to like a a trauma informed therapist in the last year to just kind of process because I have to go in for surgeries and procedures a fair bit and like the difference between the ones in which I trusted the person I understood the process I went in with my own kind of consent and volition those are the ones in which I am joking with the nurses helping people make better college decisions for their children we had to <laughs> I got sent in my last procedure they're like Hey, the anesthesiologist got really caught up asking our patient for more advice about their kid's college. So we're just going to need to like speed this whole thing along. I have like very pleasant experiences with everyone, but that's be that, that to me is the difference between learning to learning to trust that trauma is usually about um, role incongruity. So when we can't, we can't square the, the circle of what we're going through and that if I can learn to take sort of be a little more patient, then I can separate out what's just pain and what's, Mm. And what's traumatic? Mm. Mm. Got one more for you here. This is from Jackie. How do I balance positivity and disappointment? Mm. I'm trying to live with contentment after some dreams fell apart, but I also feel like I have zero goals and I don't know where to derive them from. Hmm. Well, hey, this might be, I, I don't know whether or not we have the same view on this, but I'm really interested to hear because the, the feeling as though I need to have goals, that brings us back to the bucket list thing. Mm -hmm. Bucket list is just another way to say goal. Life mm -hmm. goals, mm -hmm. substantial goals, mm -hmm. uh, experiential goals. Yeah, We don't have to have goals, no. mm -mm. but you don't also have to not have goals either. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and sometimes we get energy and direction and momentum on our life when not even when we're when we take a minute to not worry about being positive to kind of to really get a like a clearer sense of what our what we feel called to do like where we feel energy like where our gifts meet people's real needs mm. and then and then sometimes it's better not even to focus on how we're feeling about our own situation be like how can i serve people best and yes. when i do that Ooh. then maybe and then and like let, let's just dig in there a bit and oh. i i find that that's been a uh, like a helpful discernment tool for me. I love that because people often will feel defeated because they're not called to do something. Yeah. They don't have this desire. So yeah. they're sitting they're like, well, I don't have a desire to do something. Like, I'm, you know, there must be something wrong with me. And now I got to figure out yeah. a goal because that'll give me the desire. But the, the question I love that you posited was, how can I serve people? Go to a soup kitchen. Like, just start there. Yeah. You know, just do something for others. Like, that's... That's always going to, um, I don't know, it's always going to make you feel like you've, you, at least you're contributing in yeah. some way. And that's really, that's what all we want. Uh, every single human on this planet wants to contribute in some yeah. way. So the question is, how can you contribute? Not, 
not like what can I go do that's going to bring me elation or bring make me feel fulfilled or make me feel happy. It's yeah. it's more about yeah, how can I contribute? Because care, like other people, caregiving services, like you know, there's obvious ones like nurses and social workers and pastors and blah blah blah. But like just the like the the other people love focused ones often brings out in people gifts they didn't know they had. Like oh wait, I have the yeah. kind of face that like people want to tell stuff to. And I, I do, I do great in elder care facilities. Like you see people's like gifts come alive when they, when they can see that spark mirror back in somebody else. And they're like, wait, I kind of have something special here. Yeah. And I wouldn't have noticed it. And if you hadn't, if you hadn't noticed it too. Yeah. About mm. nine, nine years ago, I we have a friend, Leo Babalta, who is a, a Zen Buddhist and he runs a, a great website called Zen habits. And I heard him, we, he and I were talking and, and he, he mentioned about something about not having goals and how he now lived his life with no goals. And I'm like, that's because uh, I had the very type A American, I had spreadsheets of goals, literally, literally. Yes. Like, and sub goals under the goals mm-hmm. and percentage I, completed to goal. No, absolutely. Amazing. Concatenated and, formulas. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was very good at ex, uh, Microsoft Excel. I would have absolutely. This is not an exaggeration. This no, is I like believe legit, you yeah. and I'm deeply invested. Yeah, multiple tabs <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. with my goals and, and, and the For goals. The tables. Yes, it was. <laughs> and what I realized, and he just said, yeah, I just, and he didn't, he wasn't trying to convince me of anything. He just talked about, it. I said, huh, that's fascinating. And I've always looked up to Leo because of his, there's like a deep contentment within yeah, him yeah. and and he has six kids. So I don't know how he's yeah. so content all the time. He like, uh, anyway. It, and so I said, you know what? I'm going to, so I did this experiment. I did a hundred days with no goals, which. Oh, that's so rich. I, ironic, right? <laughs> Although at first I said, okay, I, I didn't even know how long I was going to do it. I don't want to make this a goal. So I'm just going to try to live with no goals. Right. And. It exposed a few things in me, but it, first off, wh- the main thing it exposed was my goals were making me miserable, mm. and I didn't even realize it huh. B- because I was completing so many of these goals, and it, what would happen? I'd get around the bend, and the goal would be complete, and now it's like, well, what's the next goal? And even before I completed the goal, I'd have my eye on the horizon, or I'd have my eye in the rear view, mm-hmm. and I'm constantly living. I met these goals. And those are the other goals. And I was never present. I was never in the now, so to speak. I was so caught up in this goal-oriented life. It was just another manifestation of what, you know, the, the hustle culture of, of, of today. Mm. And what I realized is it's still important for me to have direction, but the goals I do my best to avoid the the specific I need to get this mm-hmm. in order to be happy because I know the happiness cannot be pursued. It can only be uncovered. It makes me think about the whole thing I'm going through right now with wanting to be able to surf better. It's like the direction mm-hmm. is I want to be able to like surf and feel comfortable and be confident and it's fun. Like I, you know, like I want to be able to surf like I snowboard. I can, you know, I feel very confident snowboarding. So, but that's the direction. It's not like, oh, I need to lose 15 pounds or I need to be able to like break a world record or I need to be able to do a kickflip on a surfboard, which they've recently been able to do. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Within the last like few years. Anyway, um, it is crazy. But, but like, it's like, like, so yeah, those are what Josh is saying. That's kind of the difference for me. It's like, that's the direction mm-hmm. feeling better. 
Okay, to, to get back to the, the question from Jackie here, how do I balance positivity and disappointment? Yeah. I think the way that it's balanced is by understanding that we don't need either of them. We, we don't need the goals. We don't need the positivity. If these things arise, then they yeah. happen to arise, yeah. right? Yeah. The disappointment for me came from all of those goals. Yeah. Mm. And because... I would be meeting 80% of the goals, which meant I was a failure 20% of the time. And how awful am I? Mm. And I start to create this narrative of, you know what? My life is not going to be complete until I can complete all these goals. But then, of course, new goals always emerge. And thus, new disappointment always emerges. Mm. Yeah. I, I am on. I Honestly, I am struggling with this because I, I keep trying to undo that impulse. But then... When I get scared, mm. it just kicks back up. Mm. The fear. It does. The fear lends itself, leads yeah. to a completionism. Yeah, it, it really makes me feel like I was kind of in a nice third gear, and then now I'm like, now I'm just in a Vin Diesel movie. <laughs> Someone's describing Nas to me, which I still don't understand. <laughs> Ryan but can like, explain to you after the podcast. <laughs> You're like, I don't know what Nas is. It's an energy drink he has. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Something to do with nitrous? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, it does feel like it's, I want to like accelerate into. And that I think just, um, I like the direction imagery. And especially, too, because it is fun to try. I mean, it is fun to, yeah. like, remember your body doing something and push it to do something else. And yeah. all that does bring us, um, yeah, transformation is fun. Mm. And um, and the joy of just having the privilege of being able to change it all, that always feels like kind of a miracle to me. But, mm. um, but I do, like, honestly, I'm just really, I just, I feel so much compassion for your Excel self. Your Excel self and my Excel self really have some have some stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. I, and I very rarely use Excel now because I've, I've become allergic to it. You know, it's yeah. like some people develop a peanut allergy. I developed a spreadsheet yeah, allergy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he gets so swollen when he ever looks <laughs> <lives> at <the> spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I realized is there was so much discontent and disappointment. Yeah. It's so caught up in the, the striving. Yeah. And it comes from what everyone else believes we are supposed to do. Mm. Back to the, you, know, you wrote a whole book about the church planting and, and all of this stuff. And, and, and there is a striving in that we're all supposed to do this infinite, never-ending growth. And that is the key to what? Success, happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, yeah. even tranquility. Somehow peace is somewhere right yeah. around the yeah, corner. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. Well, it's usually just the second while I'm suspended midair while jumping <laughs> between yeah. things. You're right. Like, ah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's there the whole time. All we're doing is covering up that peace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a bunch of to-do lists. I mm. um have this other friend who I just love. I, and I'm, I feel like all my friends like this really all live in California because they're like that person with like intensity behind their eyes. Mm. And um, <laughs> my favorite is like, if I'm in the middle of like kind of a season where I'm just like not slowing down or whatever, mm. he's always like, who's chasing you? Oh. <laughs> like just, which is such a great thing to say. Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, and because the mm. chase, either someone's chasing us, we feel like, and therefore we're running from the fear. Kapil Gupta says fear results whenever there's a consequence. Mm. 
without a consequence, there's never fear. Mm. And what's fascinating about that is most of these consequences, these are just stories yeah. we tell ourselves. Yeah, yeah, significant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they are hilariously. I mean, some of the things that I've been just like amped up about, I mean, there's they're not even going to be worth the story at the end of my life. Isn't that fascinating? Mm. I assume there are probably things you've gotten more worked up about in your head that are inconsequential compared to like cancer. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes like scale wise, when I'm like, this is the thing. I, sometimes I, I have to, I think partly because of the, the mountaintops and valleys feeling, I'm pretty good at the mountaintop and I'm pretty good at the valley. But sometimes the mundaneness in the middle yes. is where I lose perspective. Yeah, that's for me too. It's the... Like I, I am trying to develop this this power of uh, like sitting with 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 uh, boredom in in a way if that makes any sense mm-hmm. because yeah you're right it's the middle is the hardest part to deal with it's easy to process when you have a really sharp emotion yeah but that like no emotion is uh, it's a little bit more difficult to sit with very calm I can kind of. Like mm. I got, like I have just random stuff happened to me. Like I was bitten by a poisonous snake last oh month and I had to like, I had to walk into a hospital and be like, so I've been poisoned. <laughs> and I, was just, I couldn't stop laughing because it was so funny. And like, oh and I knew I was, that they were like talking about whether they had to amputate my leg and it was fine. <laughs> but they were like using words like envenomation. And I was so cool about it <laughs> because wow. i was like i don't know the, the mountaintops and the valleys i'm i'm a-okay mm. but like you know it's the six tumbling hours later, between <laughs> yeah. it's the like faculty meetings or emails where people are i can't understand tone or <laughs> it's just yeah. like why am i upset about this but i was really chill about the copperhead right wow. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I wonder what the that. prosperity gospel folks would say about you being bit by a venomous snake. But then I survived. That's oh. right. She's the chosen Thanks one. Thanks to who? <laughs> yeah. My, well, obviously, one, my faith, obviously. And also the, the $100,000 envenomation process. Oh, my God. It really does, guys. It costs $100,000. <laughs> oh, my God. They had, to make it, they had to make it, and I asked them for the history of it, and I was really invested. Oh, now wow. she's immune. We can hand her poisonous <laughs> snakes. That's right. Go chug, ahead and try chug, to poison chug. her. Chug, chug, <laughs> chug. Yeah. And that's how this podcast ends. Oh, my God. Kate, I want to acknowledge you. Um, by the way, uh, your new book is called No Cure for Being Human. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Where else should people find you? Oh, you can find me. I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook at Kate C. Bowler. And uh, I've got katebowler.com if you want to listen to the... Oh, yeah, I have a podcast called yes, Everything Happens where <laughs> I talk to people about the befores and the afters in their lives. Mm. and. And it's, and everyone, and everyone has one. I enjoy uh, Everything Happens. By the way, uh, you wrote a book with this title, and it might be my favorite book title. It's uh, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. (laughs) Yeah. And, oh. Oh, because what you're doing there is you're exposing a platitude, and quite often there is some true, there's profundity in a lot of platitudes. Yeah. But not in this one. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're hypercausal and a heat-seeking missile of meaning. Uh, Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Isn't that most of us? I was just going to say, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Oh, Oh, man. Uh, All right, folks. uh, We'll put links to all of that in the show notes. Kate, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Like we're best friends and I never want to leave. You are an amazing. Well, you're welcome to stick around. Human being. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it up. (laughs) All right, y'all. Love people. Oh, real quick, before we do that, I have a vote. I voted sticker here. Oh, I have a funny story about my I voted sticker, but you first. So the last two weeks we've been talking about whether or not it makes sense to vote. Yeah. And uh, 
because Ryan and I, like, we, like, dig deep into the whole voting process. And, like, we'll spend <laughs> six hours, you know, l- researching, oh, which judge should I vote for? And yeah. who uh, shares the my interest and all of these it's other so things. so much time. What, <laughs> oh, my God. Who will best serve the greater good? And then, of course, it never actually matters in the term. And, and in the scheme of things, like my vote has never swayed an election. <laughs> we, we know that, like just mathematically, mm-hmm. my vote, mm-hmm. I've never been the deciding vote for president or mayor or city council. <laughs> and yet I spend six hours all the time on voting. Mm-hmm. And it was the question I asked in the last episode, and we had some interesting comments from folks, uh, and was, hey, is this the best use of these six hours? <laughs> and I still don't know the answer to that, yeah. but I still voted this time around. Um, so spoiler alert. Well, no, because there was only one thing to vote on this time. So y- right. You already voted, right? I already voted, yeah. And so um, you was either to, like, if you wanted to oust the current governor, and if so, who do you replace him with? Yeah. And, of course, I did the same thing every time. I always write in Ryan Nicodemus. I wrote in Joshua Fields Milburn. Well, there we go. We each got a vote. <laughs> That's right. And um, so, yes, I, I did vote, although I don't know that I would have spent six hours on this one. I think I might have no. just shredded it. Yeah. So here, so I've I got a sticker. I'm never going to wear it because what? my uh, my virtue signaling. I, do, so I was hoping you'd say virtue signaling. <laughs> Thank you. So do, well, you know what's funny is I have, um, I covered up the Apple logo with the I voted sticker. It just happened to coincide with like, yeah. I had the vo- I voted sticker. I'm like, what the heck am I going to do with this? So I covered up the Apple logo. And then I, you know, I voted and I go to the trash to throw this away. And I literally like ripped the I voted sticker off. And I was going to like put it in my junk drawer. I'm like. What am I? Why am I holding on to this I voted <laughs> sticker? Like, where do I need a virtue signal that I have voted? Yeah. Like, anyway, like in case in case the sticker falls off of my laptop, like, I have no idea. Become so important. I know. It was re- so I just threw it away. So this is another one of those things where we were told that you are supposed to do this. You're a bad person if you don't do it. Yeah. In fact, even if we start to question it, then it's like, well, wait, what? Am, w- w- why are you asking that question? Mm. It's really dangerous to ask questions like this, to question the status quo. Yeah. And I, I've I've come to the to the understanding that um, politicians have, j- by and large, not made our lives better. Maybe there's a few out there that have that have aided the greater good, but um, my time is probably better served. Those six hours are probably better served doing something else yeah and yet i still voted this time around mm-hmm. so <laughs> i demand a pat on the back after this case. i'll yeah. give you one and you one though i have no american feelings <laughs> I will, you can have them all for me oh great that's yeah. fine i don't have american yeah. feelings either or any others america's just a construct <laughs> amen to that <laughs> that's held up with missiles and guns and, <laughs> and armies and yeah anyway. i think that's where we can all agree <laughs> that uh, america is a construct and if you don't like it you can kiss our ass. <laughs> <laughs> We're right, number one. We're number one. Let's fade out this way, Sean. We're number one. You can't chant, We're Emma. You're one. still uh, immigrating. That's right. Uh, she's a fellow Canadian as well. Mm-hmm. Hence the accent. That's <laughs> just sort of in her aura. We say D- sorry. Yeah. Anyway. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. The Minimalists. <laughs>